So, you know, last night I was here working on this message, and I was in my uh, room, my office, and, you know, it's, it's, this is a great place when no one's here. It's a great place when you're all here, too, but it's a great place to pray, to study, to learn from when nobody's here. And every now and then when you're here alone, the, there's these things that have, that, like, the doors start to rattle, and the windows move a little bit, and this garage door that gets to our attic, that actually shakes, when the door is open. It's because if you open the front door, the wind moves a little bit, the air pressure changes, and everything about this building kind of changes. And what, what you hope in that moment is you find someone. You know what I'm saying? You hope somebody actually came in because otherwise you're questioning. It sounds like I'm not here alone. And anyway, last night that all happened, and I went looking for the person who was here, came in here, and I could hear noises, somebody rattling around. And it, I thought maybe it was a groundhog. I mean, it, you know, it was over in this area, and I couldn't see anybody. And as it turns out, Jim Howland was here, you know? And we thank people all the time for being on our praise team and being in ministry and doing all sorts of things that are visible. But Jim and Betty are people who work behind the scenes all over the place at Parker Ford. They've been very faithful, and we just felt like we should honor them. You know, there's all sorts of people like this who do amazing things behind uh, all of the activities we're able to see with our eyes. And Jim and Betty both do amazing ministry here. And I want to just tell you a few things they do. One, Jim is on the AV committee. He actually works on the sound, and that's what he was here doing here last night, but they're deacons. Jim's been a trustee. Betty actually built our original church website. The first website that Parker Ford Church ever had, Betty built. And, you know, if you go to our community garden today, there are these uh, tomato plants. They're gigantic tomato plants. They're huge. And they're all held on stakes by these strips of cloth that Betty ripped from other cloths so that we could use them as free ties. So our tomatoes are staying off the ground because of Betty Holland. And Betty and Jim have opened their house to people who needed a place to stay. One person is specific for a long time. They have done all sorts of things that are behind the scene. And so, you know, Sometimes we as a church don't honor like we need to. We honor God, and we need to honor God most of all. But he works through people, and he works through Jim and Betty, along with many others of you. And I would just like to take a moment to recognize Jim and Betty's ministry. Would that be okay? Can we just give them a hand of applause for what God does through them? I, I was just struck. I was just struck last night. You know, here's a guy on Saturday night. I know how I feel about my Saturday evenings. I don't always want to be here, even though it's a great place and all of that. You know, there's places Jim could have been, but he was putting the sound together. And it just sparked our minds to think, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that goes unnoticed and unthanked. And so make sure you just give a word of encouragement to them for all they do. This morning we're going to talk about joy. Uh, you can see it up there. I think joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit that's very difficult to define. Would you agree? I mean, it's a lot different than other words that might mean close to the same thing, like happiness, for instance, is not necessarily the same thing as joy. There's something about joy, and we need to take some time this morning to define that. I want to read, uh, because Tim said last week that we're going to all have this memorized by this week, right? If you were here last week, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we're spending our whole summer on this passage of Scripture. We should have it you know, figured out. So could you read it with me at least? It says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. That's my own version. Against such things, there is no law. I love that last line. There's no rule. You know, the people who Galatians was written to, they actually had a lot of rules that were going against them. Their faith was actually at points illegal in their time. And what the writer is telling them, St. Paul, he's literally saying, listen, you know, there's no rule against these internal things. You can't 
take these things from anybody. They're either there or they're not. And no other human being can either give them or take them away, although we can affect them. Two weeks ago, I had the great joy, complete unexpected joy, and I mean that word, pun intended, of going to Rhode Island. You know, there are 50 states in the United States, and we have some people in our church from Texas, and they're big on Texas. You know, Texas is big, right? Everything's bigger in Texas. And Rhode Island is small, and I have never been to Rhode Island. I got up there, and it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. I've never been to Rhode Island before in my life. And, you know, there are these bays. My sister and brother-in-law live in Newport, Rhode Island, and they're right on Newport Harbor. And my brother-in-law, he actually captains a schooner, a ship, a sailing vessel, and he he works to take people out on the, the bay all summer, four trips a day, three trips a day, out there going back and forth, seeing the sun rises and the sunsets. And it is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. I took our three children, Shelby, stayed back here to work, and the three children and I went to Rhode Island. We, we actually got to go on that sailboat with my brother. He gave us a complimentary trip out into Newport Harbor. It's 60 feet long, and my kids had never been on a sailboat before. What an amazing gift. You know, I don't know if you've ever sailed, but, you know, it's not like a regular boat. I mean, the wind hit us at 12 to 15 knots, which is pretty good. It's not a storm, but it's a beautiful day, and the wind was really blowing, and the the boat just kind of goes over on the side, and it's like the, the deck of the sailboat becomes a slide, but if you slide down it, you actually end in a very different pool than the children's pool my kids are used to, and they were, you know, running around this deck. It was a little bit interesting, but it was absolutely gorgeous, and we spent two hours out there just sailing around Newport Harbor, and I mean, what a gift. We came back, and we were walking along the, the boardwalk, and um, the, there's a line in our family that signifies that we are just having an exceptional moment, that we've been gifted by God with something unique. And the moment was this. My, my, the words are these. My one daughter said them. She said, this is the best day ever, you know? And, A, that's a lot of joy in her heart, right? But it was a lot of joy in mine. I'm her dad, and I want her to have good experiences in life. They'd never been on a sailboat. This was out there in the middle of, we didn't have to spend any money. We were just out there in the middle of God's creation, experiencing all of this beauty and the sky, the the ocean. It was just amazing. And so the fact that she was receiving all that and that I was receiving it through her, that she was saying, this is the best day ever. It was a great moment for me with my kids, just exceptional. And so we walk down the boardwalk and we're going past all of these different stands. We get to the residential area of Newport and there's this kind of place where it's like a jetty and you can take and insert a boat there. And here's this guy and he's in a dory, like a rowboat. And he's sitting there and he's feeling the rock and there's mortar between the rock. He's looking at it real closely. I don't know what he's doing. He's floating around in this boat, and he's looking at it. Maybe he's inspecting to see if there's erosion or whatever it is. And he looked like, you know, he was 147 years old. Honestly, no, no offense. I very much like elderly people, but this guy challenged me. He had this, like, skin that looked like it had been left out in a 100 Newport winters, and he was really suntanned and sunburned and all of this, and he didn't notice us and didn't look at us, and I didn't. I tried to make eye contact with him, walk by, and just kind of moved down. But my kids were dancing around. They were having the best day ever, and they were having a great moment of great joy, and they were just experiencing life. And one of them went over to the edge of the, the water and looked down at him, and he's probably four feet below her, and he, she said, what are you doing? And he said, get away, kid. Get out of here. Now, I got to tell you, I wanted to kick him back into the ocean. 
I really did. I mean, I didn't do that because, you know, that's not right. But that was my first visceral reaction. My second was to notice my children. One of them walked away from the water and just was like, what's wrong with him? And she was unaffected. Who cares what that guy thinks? He's having a bad day. He's not going to mess my day up. But the other one, one of my children, watched and, and looked and kind of pondered for a second. And I, the heart would have been that big before this, and it shrunk down to the, her heart was hurt by this man. And, you know, this great moment, best day ever, the sun, the wind, the sailboat, it was exceptional. And yet this guy comes along and he stole my daughter's joy, right? We all do this, right? I mean, honestly, you've had a bad day and you've replied to somebody in a way that was inappropriate. And this guy didn't deserve to get kicked into the ocean for it. But it was tempting a little bit, you know, especially since he just kind of went on his business and didn't think about the fact that he had hurt a young child, at least internally. Joy is something unique. And in this moment, I learned a little bit about joy because my kids were experiencing all of this joy, and yet I watched it fade quickly, just in the middle of what is normal life for us. Let me move on to define joy, and then we'll come back to the story a little bit. The the Unger's Bible Dictionary defines joy this way. It says, The delight of the mind arising from the consideration of a present or assured possession of a future good. That's pretty tough, right? We've got to unpack it a little bit. It's a little bit difficult to read that. But what it means is the delight of the mind arising from thinking about what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the present and what God has promised to do in the future. What God has done in the past is he has spent decades and centuries and millenniums eroding the bay outside of Newport, Rhode Island in just such a way that the rocks look the way they do, with grass going down to them in these unique ways, with people developing the land. The guy who actually owned Bethlehem Steel, most of Bethlehem Steel, built a house. That's Bethlehem Steel in Pottstown. It's not there anymore. But he actually built a house right on this bay. I went to his house. I looked at it. I thought, wow, this is amazing. People from Pottstown or Philadelphia actually traveled up there to, to, to vacation. And I'm looking out over this. God did all that. It was all beautiful there because in the past, he's built a beautiful world for us. He's done much more than that, right? He's written this amazing book that's taken thousands of years to get to where we are today. And God's still doing amazing acts. If you're a person who walks with Jesus, it's because he reached into your life and he changed you and he started the work of transforming you and he forgave you and you accepted that gift. He's still at work. And the Bible tells us that he's got a great angle on our future. He's promised amazing things for us in the future. And joy comes from accepting what God has already done for us, receiving what he is doing in the moment for us today, and also living by the fact that there are these promises that are bigger and better. You know, our world doesn't completely work. You know what the word symbiosis means? Anybody know symbiosis? You've got to watch the Nature Channel, man. I mean, honestly, the Nature Channel can tell you all you need to know about this word. Symbiosis is when two organisms live in complementary peace with each other. They, they each benefit from the relationship. Good marriages are symbiotic, okay? Good churches are symbiotic. And our world was supposed to work symbiotically. Does it work that way, where everybody benefits everybody else? You know, if you just watch the news about Egypt this week, it, it's not working, Right? This guy got overturned as the leader of Egypt, and that's the second leader in a couple of years we've seen over there. It's concerning. This is not symbiosis, and our world is not necessarily working symbiotically. And so some of the things we have to think about are not just what God has done in the past or the present, but we actually have to think God is going to build a better future. You know, the Bible ends with this line that there will be no tears in our eyes. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
No one will be passing away anymore. There will be life. Shelby and I had somebody close to us be diagnosed with cancer just this past week. Again, that's happened more times than I can count. And we're sitting here going, really? You know, and it doesn't work. All of our world doesn't work. And yet the Bible promises that eventually it will. And joy comes from not just experiencing what there is in the present and the past, but knowing that there's a future with God that he's going to take us to be with him. Jesus said this line that he's going away to prepare a place for us, right? A mansion. He's going to prepare a mansion. If it were not so, I would have told you. In my Father's house are many mansions, he says. And I'm going that you may come where I am. That's the future side of this. So joy comes from just like my children receiving the wind and the sun and the beautiful stuff of, uh, that, that surrounds Newport, Rhode Island. They were experiencing that, and they... they got filled with joy. And then it got taken away. And a lot of our joy does that. There's a few other words in the Bible. You know, definitions are not the best way to understand words. Sometimes there's other words. You know, they kind of all work together. This is the family of joy. The gladness means, you know, joy only small, un poco, you know, just little joy. Little joy is just gladness. You know, there's that other side of the bed that you can wake up on. Nobody ever talks about this side. We always talk about the wrong side of the bed. But there's actually a good side of the bed, right? You ever wake up and just realize, wow, I'm having a good day. You probably didn't because you thought you should have had a good day, and you think every day should be good, but it isn't always that way. But we should probably once in a while put on Facebook, I woke up on the right side of the bed. That's gladness. Then there's another word, triumph. That means to, to win at something, right? We feel triumphant. Joy is there when we win and we, uh, maybe we, we graduate. Maybe we accomplish something. Maybe we win at a sport. Whatever it is, joy takes that moment and it turns us into somebody who's triumphant. Exaltation. I love exaltation because I always see it in the same place. When I get to a hospital room and there's a little baby that's just been born and I'm looking at a new mother or a new father, they have this exultant look on their face like, wow, look at this. And then they also have this look of, oh, no, look at this. You know, they, they go kind of together. They're exalting. The, the image bearer of a human being being born into their family. What a gift. Then there's contentment, right? Just peace, just the, the fact that things are working. Joy, not exuberant and out there, but just kind of in here, contentment. Then last but not least, cheerfulness. You know, the Bible says that God loves a blank giver. Cheerful. That's a line from the scriptures. God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerfulness is joy only mature. Cheerfulness is when joy takes over a person's life, and it's not just in one area or a few areas, but it's actually become what the whole world about, the, about that person is all about, what their life is all about, is cheerfulness. There's not so many people like this. And God loves it when people give, not because some pastor drags on and on about how we need money, but rather because he just wants to give or she just wants to give. And cheerfulness is when joy infects our lives and and pervades our beings to the point where we're always joyful, where most of what goes on in our life is filled with joy. Those are words that are used all over the scriptures. I'm not going to quote all the references, but they just give you an angle on what joy looks like. Let me give you another angle. This is one of my heroes. Um, I don't have a lot of heroes. And this guy, of all things, um, none of my heroes, this is the only one, are are theologians, okay? Because theologians tend to be dry and dusty. They look at dusty books all day. They look at words that nobody wants to read, and they don't. nobody even wants to understand. But Steve Brown is a theologian, and he looks like Santa Claus. If you Google him, you can find a picture of him. He looks like Santa Claus, and he sounds like Elvis, okay? And he's just... Happy, joy-filled, all the time, exuberant. It's like life is just good for him. 
And he's always talking about how Christians should be like this. He's a Presbyterian. And he's still the only Presbyterian I know who actually hosted in his church. And his church almost stood up against him. He tells the story. That he hosted a healing service and said, let's all come to pray because God wants to work in our lives in a way that we have not experienced yet. And Steve Brown, he's just is one of those people who's just so joy-filled, it's hard not to notice him. And yet he's a great thinker. He wrote this line. Christians ought to live with such hope and joy that uptight Christians <clears throat> wonder if we are Christians. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, this draws a line down the middle of us. Either you are an uptight Christian wondering why the rest of this room is having a good morning, or you are having a good morning and you're wondering why the other people are somber. I'm not going to pick the ones of you out on both sides of the line. But, you know, what God is talking about when he's giving us the fruits of the Spirit there's a word for what he's, what he's doing. It's called an entitlement. Do you know what an entitlement is? A few years ago, Shelby and I, we realized, we went to our tax person at the end of the year, April, you know, we turn in all our stuff, and just like all of you, and we realized our tax person said, you don't actually need to pay any taxes. I said, you mean I don't need to write a check because we've hold enough? No, she said, you're going you're gonna to get a bunch back because you're not going to actually pay any federal taxes this year. What do you mean? She said, well, you don't make enough money and you do have so many kids and so many dependents that you're not, the government is telling you you don't need to pay money at all. And that you're, believe it or not, the government said, well, we're just going to give you a stimulus check of $300, and we got this check in the mail for doing absolutely nothing, and we sent nothing to them, and they sent $300 to us. Later, that program failed, and, you know, it didn't pass Congress or something, and they're talking about the fact that what is our economy going to do with all these young families? Don't get those $300 that they got that last year, and we survived, you know, we were okay. But that's called an entitlement, right? And we get accustomed, accustomed to getting entitlements. Shelby and I had a conversation. There, there's this hashtag, uh, if you Twitter or if you've seen, you've seen it maybe on Facebook or on websites, it says first world problems. You know what, have you seen this? First world problems. It's things that we grow to expect only here, not in developing world. Nobody would expect this in Nigeria. Nobody would expect this in Chad, and yet we grow to expect them. So Shelby and I were having a conversation that we've gone to Giant, and we've noticed that once, once in a while, there's not bananas at Giant. And we're tempted to throw a hissy fit sitting in the fresh produce aisle because there's no bananas at Giant. We've grown entitled, wouldn't you agree? In 1800, how many bananas do you think you could have found in Pottstown, Pennsylvania? Probably none, right? If they were, they would have been dried and uh, shipped in from South America. You know, we have all of these things about our world that we think we're entitled to. Often we think we're entitled to bigger houses, better cars. Our kids should get better educations, etc., etc. We should spend all this money and do all of these different things and go through all this debt because we are entitled to a life like everybody else has. I'm no worse than that person over there, and look at their house. It's 4,000 square feet, and mine is only 2,500 square feet. I should go whatever, get a bigger house. Well, when God talks about entitlements, he means something very different. The fruits of the spirits are his form of entitlement. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He didn't offer us better lives in the sense that we get better houses or, or, or better cars or any of these sorts of things. What he offered us is that internally we are entitled to experiencing these things. Tim told you last week, we don't get love from ourselves. We're not necessarily just naturally loving beings. We have to get it from God. And yet God is there offering us these things. He's offering us joy. Let me show you what I mean. You know, there's, there's three reasons that I could figure out why we should be joyful. 
three reasons in the scriptures why should be, we should be joyful. The first is that God himself is joyful. Now, some of us get the wrong perspective about God. We picture him this dour God who, and he does go through pain, and he does go through difficulty, and he does have trouble with us and the fact that we don't love him. And yet he's always joyful. You know what the opposite of joy is? What is the opposite word as joy? Depression. Depression is the opposite of joy. You know what depression is? Often, there's a few things it is, but one of the things is that when we have something in our lives where we don't trust ourselves to respond and we feel like we have to keep cloaked within us all of our feelings and we hide those things, we grow depressed. Joy is the opposite. Joy responds instantaneously. When something hits us, then we respond and we can trust ourselves to respond in the moment and people around us can be blessed by our response. You know, we have all this stuff going on in our lives that are a little bit dark, a little bit difficult, and we love to hide those things because we don't want people to see who we truly are. God never does that. He's constantly available to anybody who's willing to connect with him. He's constantly available in the sense that he is very much a responsive God who doesn't need to hide any part of how he feels. God is joyful. In Nehemiah chapter 8, there's this scripture about this, and it says something interesting. It says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What that does not mean is that the joy that we experience because we have God is our strength. It means that God himself is joyful, and in experiencing God, we are in contact with somebody who is so joyful that we are changed by that. This passage is an interesting passage. You think it was a moment of celebration, but it's actually a moment of deep repentance. The people in Nehemiah had failed and done exactly what God told them not to do. And they were tempted to go into this self-loathing cycle and to just decide, you know what, we're going to just say we are bad. Collectively, let's have a gigantic gathering and let's say we are bad. We are bad. And God says, no, through his priest. He says, no, don't say you're bad. Say, I need the joy of the Lord to be my strength. Let's throw a feast. Let's gather together and let's connect and let's realize that God is not struggling with the same malaise that we are. He's not like us. He's like us in all sorts of ways, but not in this one. He is always joyful. The joy of the Lord and the fact that he is filled with joy is our strength. In John chapter 4, there's this woman Jesus runs in and gets in contact with at a well. She's a Samaritan woman, and he promises her through metaphorical language that if she'll drink the eternal life water that he offers her, then that water will build into a well that's going to overflow. I just picture this water. It's just like a babbling brook coming down a mountainside. You know, there's something joyful about not big, gigantic, rushing waters, but quiet little streams that babble their way across rocks, right? And Jesus says, I will build a creek like that coming from your heart, and it will overflow into other people's lives. But it starts with who? It starts with the God who is the source of all these things. The fruits of the Spirit are fruits of God being active in our life because he himself is those things already. God is loving. First John tells us God is love. And here we find out he is joyful as well. And so one big reason is that when we look back at our past and all that we've experienced with God and all that anyone's ever experienced about God or with God, he has always been filled with joy, always filled with joy. There's a second reason, and that's this. God has adopted us. Why should we be joyful? Because this God who is joyful and different than us and his immense joy is constantly somebody who wants to care for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You know, there's a lot of words we can unpack in there, but notice just this word, pleasure. Do you think God is pleased with you? I don't mean is he pleased with your behavior. I mean, is he pleased with you? 
I've asked a lot of women this question, and I ask it for a very different reason than you're going to think. But I've asked. I've asked my sisters. I've asked my mother. I've asked my wife. I've talked to people I'm close to who are of the, the feminine persuasion. I, how many of you think you're beautiful? I've never had a woman tell me, yes, absolutely. I know I'm beautiful. Do you, I mean, anybody want to counter, contradict me on that? And frankly, I've spent a lot of time with guys, and I've never had a guy who feels so respectable, so capable. Most of us have doubts, deep doubts, about whether we're really good at our jobs, whether we're really capable fathers, whether we're really going to be the, the faithful husbands that God called us to be. We have doubts about ourselves. And frankly, those things eat at us. And yet God says, listen, I predestined you to be adopted to be my children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, not just will, that's that word that says God is doing what he wants to do and nobody can stand in the way, but instead it says in accordance with his pleasure. He's actually pleased with the way you look. He actually is pleased with me. And he likes me. And he created me. Some of you think I'm kind of a little crazy. He likes that stuff about me. You don't have the right to criticize. Why? Because God likes me. And I don't have that right in your life. Right? This passage tells us some interesting things, but among them, and maybe chiefly, it tells us that we should be joy-filled because the God of the universe, who is himself absolutely joy-filled, has decided to adopt people like you and me who have problems and flaws and difficulties, and yet he takes pleasure in the fact that he created us and that he's transforming us into being people who we are not yet. We're not there yet, but that's okay because God is taking us to where we need to be. And one of the things that will help him to do his job is when we accept his joy. When our father hears that we are joyful, when he hears us say words just like I heard my daughter say, like, this is the best day ever. How do you think that makes the God of the universe feel? He's adopted us. He wants to hear us say, this is the best day ever because I am the God of the universe and I love you and I've created this world in which you live. It's not perfect, but it is good. And I've created this family for you and it's not perfect, but it is good. God in the, pra- God in the past has always been joyful. God in the present has adopted us. But in the future, God does something else and we need to talk about that. Reason number three. God has provided you with a future. In Revelation chapter 5, it tells us this. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is an interesting passage. These, the, the, the Son of God comes out in this throne room scene that the Apostle John sees in heaven, and he's watching this worship scene. And, and Jesus comes out and sits next to the Father God. And the 10,000 upon 10,000 angels that are in heaven, they start to worship. And they say these words, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Worthy is he to receive all of the honor, riches, wealth, strength, power, glory. Any word you can think of, he's worthy because he's taken children who were disconnected from their father and he's brought them close. Through the cross and through the resurrection, he has changed the game for us. And so he is worthy and the angels all worship. But then there's another set of people and there's a question about what they're going to do. And they respond and that's where these words come from. Those are all the people who have passed away at this point. They're all up there in heaven. This is where we go when we die. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, they say. They're, they're literally leading in a worship. The angels lead first, and then the people respond, and they say, Jesus, you are to be honored. Now, this is why this is a sign for us that we can have joy, because that's our future. 
Because when we leave here, we go to a much better worship service. I loved our praise team this morning. It was really good. The balance was right. All things just seemed to work for me. I don't know if it worked for you, but it worked for me. You know, but when, when it comes down to it, God has this worship team in heaven that is going to make Shelby and the praise team look a little small. You know what I'm saying? 10,000 upon 10,000 angels. A new heaven and a new earth. A world that works symbiotically. Ecosystems that don't require scientists to figure them out because the Son of God is in charge. And he always liked those fish that we've forgotten to care about. We're never going to recycle our way into a new heaven and a new earth, by the way, right? The only way to get there is eventually going to be, and you should recycle and you should care for the creation, but the only way to get there is for Jesus to take leadership on this planet. And what the great news and the reason why we can have joy is because he promises to do it. There's no question. And the worship is going to be amazing. And the nature and the creation is going to be amazing. We're going to have beautiful stuff. You know, when I was a kid, my, my fish died. And I remember asking my parents, do fish go to heaven? And my parents were like, no. You know, the Bible actually teaches, I don't know if individual fish go to heaven, but the the Bible actually teaches there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I think there are going to be sharks. I really do. Wouldn't it be great if there were sharks? My son Noah, if there are no sharks in heaven, he's just going to absolutely be angry because he lives to just discover new types of shark. I mean, he's constantly watching videos about this. These are sources for our joy. Okay, God in the past, God in the present, God in the future, the God who has been joyful forever, the God who saves us with his gigantic joy and the God who is not okay with the brokenness of our world. And in his joyfulness, he wants to build us into a future that we have not yet experienced. That's a great God. But if we're honest, there are things that steal our joy as well. And we need to talk about those just in the last few minutes. Okay, so a few things that steal our joy. And I'm going to read this passage. Jesus teaches this in Luke chapter 11. And it's fascinating to think about. It says, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your whole body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. What is he talking about? He's saying that the lamp of our lives is right here. And he doesn't mean really your eyes. He means that what you're looking at, what you're desiring, what your imagination is focused on, those are the things that either make you joy-filled, fill you with eternal life because God is flowing through them, or else they actually have the power to do the opposite as well. Darkness can enter through here for focusing on the wrong things. There's a list in the Bible about this. I just want to go through it for a quick moment. It tells us that, you know, one of the things that takes away our joy is when the lamp of our body, the lamp of our life, starts to look at other people and dislike them. Most of us, honestly, have somebody in our life that we have these conversations with. We we look back in our past and we say, remember when they said this and such? And we say, I wish I would have said blah, blah, blah. We have this kind of internal conversation. Have you ever had one of these? Come on, you have. You honestly have. You've had a conversation with somebody who's made you angry, and that that anger has built up to resentment, and that resentment is building to bitterness, and it's actually to the place where you're looking around you. And there's 7 billion people on this planet that you wouldn't mind seeing today, but if that one person is in the fresh produce aisle, you're in trouble. You work with them, and you see them at the water cooler, or you are in their family, and you go to a family reunion, and you see them, or worse yet, you're married to them, and you see them at the kitchen when you get home from work. I don't know where it is for you, but we all struggle with this. And Jesus says, listen, you have to forgive. 
Because when we don't forgive, when we don't have, then the, the lamp of our body grows dark and our life grows dark and we have no joy and we wonder, why are all those other people joyful and why do they have the Spirit of Christ in them that somehow fills them with all of this energy in life and yet I don't have that. And the reason why is because we're mad at so-and-so who's not even in the room and we're having an internal conversation that's completely hypothetical. Words will never actually say and we're just kind of building up to this moment where we're churning out nastiness. It darkens our eyes and it darkens our lives. Some of us, we're looking and our imagination is figure, f- focused on something else. person of the opposite gender. Every once in a while, it's a person of the same gender. And we're attracted to that person. Some of those people are in books. You can buy those novels and they'll, they'll give you this emotional, fulfilling relationship that you'll never have with an actual human, right? You know the novels I'm talking about? Romantic, romantic imaginative experiences, we'll call them. Or maybe it's an image, a physical image. We can look at them as men especially, and we can see that thing, and we, our eyes grow dark as we look at what we'll never, absolutely never have because God never intended. In fact, maybe he never even created. He can do amazing things with computers, right? And yet our world is focused on this imaginative array that gives us options besides our spouses. And when we look and when we experience and when we go after those things, they eat at the core of who we are. And God, in all of his life, in his graciousness, he won't pour life into somebody who's not receiving it, not accepting it, not wanting it. And when we do that, when we look, when we experience out there, we lose the joy in here. Some of us, we are focused, maybe all of us, looking at images that tell us that we need something other than what we have. It's really hard, and I've been told this in the last week, if I just look at messages I've received, that I am not who I should be unless I have a new GM, a new Honda, and a new Toyota. You know, that's what the television tells me all the time. Nothing wrong with TV. I'm not here to preach one of those nasty messages. But we get these kind of focused messages about us that we are not all of the human that we could be. We are not, not to the extent that I could be, I'm not a man because I don't have this new vehicle yet. There's this guy named Shane Hips, and he was the, he was the head of uh, the Porsche advertising for the United States. He was the director of advertising for the United States Porsche Company. And he came to Christ, and he realized that the message he was sending and constantly trying to proliferate was completely in counterculture to the message of the Scriptures, and he couldn't do both. He actually quit his job over this because he realized his job was to tell people, you're not who you need to be unless you have a Porsche. And Jesus said, you're not who you need to be because you don't have the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that I want to give you. We have all of these messages coming into our brain and they're constantly telling us, you need to purchase something more. And whatever it is, we probably don't need it. And it certainly is not on the level of what God's entitlement list is, right? This is where we grow entitled. We think so-and-so has a new van, so I need to get a new van. So-and-so's house is 4,000 square feet, so I need a 4,200 square feet house. We go on and on in our minds thinking about these things, and it can go forever. I I saw an iPhone the other day that cost $6,000. $6,000, custom-made smartphone. Nobody can buy them. You can't get them on the Internet. It was custom-made for one person that wanted to spend the money on that phone. He just wanted a phone that nobody else had. I didn't know you could do that. I thought you had to go to the AT&T store. No, there's custom made everything. And if you want to spend enough money, there's always the next level up. 
and the lamp of our body gets darkened and our lives grow darkened and our joy in Jesus goes missing because we're looking at the wrong things. The people we're mad at, the person we wish we were with dating or at least in some sort of terrible imaginative way, or maybe it's because we constantly want bigger and better, nicer things. There's one last category, and it's the one I hate to bring up. But there's one last category, and that's that we are deceived. We are people who like to look around us and project an image out there, right? We like to say we're somebody other than who we are. We want to lie about ourselves. You are not a perfect person. You are not as beautiful as probably you think you should be or as handsome or as wealthy or whatever it is. And what we do when we think these thoughts that we should be this but we're not is that we're tempted to go spend money we don't have because we want to keep up with other people and look like those people. When we do it in church, we say, we're good Christians. Look at us. We're in church. And being a good Christian because you're in church is like becoming a car just because you sit in a garage. It doesn't actually work, right? You're still who you are when you leave this place. If you're a broken person, you are a broken person. And we love to project these images and say, look at me, I am better than I actually am. And we know, and we have these severe doubts about ourselves, and we think we're not all that we wish we were. We're not all of this stuff, but we want other people to think we are. And yet, in the middle of all that, God knows. And our lying, it's not a lying that any of us would admit to, but it's a lie, right? The lie that we project out there and that we show you all and we say, I'm a good person. It's one of the reasons I didn't pray today during that prayer time. I I prayed at the end, but I wanted you to pray. And the reason why is because it's very easy for me to just stand up here and put words out there and us all to just accept the words I put out there. But in real prayer, we get honest with God, right? And it's really between you and him. So how are we deceiving ourselves and thinking that we're more than we, are, than, we, than we are. God already knows who we are. I grew up next door to this young lady, three years younger than me, and she had the great gift, and we all had the great gift, of the fact that she was born Down syndrome, and just a beautiful person, and grew up for the first, I forget how many years of my life, living next door, and, and she did many things for us. She gave us many gifts, but one of the things she did was she kept, in my family, our inner children alive. Her name was Betsy, and she would come over when I was 10 years old, and she would want to play guns, and she would bring squirt guns, and we would play cops and robbers and cowboys and all these different things. She just had all of this different stuff she loved to do, and she kept doing that. When I was 12, she did it, 15, 18. I was 20 years old in college, and she'd come over with a squirt gun and say, okay, are you ready? And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, it's starting to feel a little crazy. But, you know, she was filled with so much joy that she took my older than I needed to be experienced and said, you know what? You're going to have more fun if you act like a little kid. And we did. We had tremendous amounts of fun. Some of the things that are wrong with us that we're trying to cover up are not so wrong with us maybe, right? They're actually gifts to the body of Christ where we have weaknesses and we wish those things weren't weaknesses, but when we admit they are weaknesses, they become blessings for other people to play into. Betsy never had the problem of thinking she needed to hide all that stuff. Instead, she just said, this is who I am. And in being who she was, she offered us the gift of realizing that all of those lies that we're perpetrating on our society by saying we're more than we are, they're all just a joke. God already knows, and frankly, most other people know that we're not who we wish we were. He's in the process of transforming some things. Other things about us, he just likes. He thinks we're beautiful the way we are, and he's not willing to change because he wants us to be what we are. We look at God and we say, we don't want to be what you made. And he says, but I love what I made. According to Ephesians 1, I'm pleased with what I made. I saved you and love you because I like you. It's really hard for us to hear. 
when we hear the fruits of the Spirit read past us, what we're not prepared for maybe, is that the God of the universe is these things and he's offering them to us. And by becoming a part of his life and looking and hearing about his past and hearing about our present and experiencing him in our life to now, up to now and then looking to the future, which he has promised to us, we're supposed to be having a great amount of joy. Dave Willauer, who's in junior church, he's our administrative pastor. He had a line. He used to be an elementary school principal at Royers Ford Elementary, and he used to say this line every day, make it a great day or not. And he always said it like that, or not. The choice is yours. We have the choice about making this a day when we experience the fruit of what God is all about in our lives, letting these things flow through us, letting the love and the joy extend beyond us, letting the eternal life flow down like a mountain stream, or not. And the difference is being a part of what God's all about, or not. Join me in prayer.